Foo Bar's World Fuck Up with Joe Forrester and Hannah East. Hello, I'm Joe Forrester and welcome to Food Bar's World Fuck Up, the show that's more culturally sensitive than England fans wearing Crusader outfits in Qatar. And coming up on today's show, we'll be talking the tournament so far with comedian Bilal Zafar, discussing the link between football and alcohol with Dr. Richard Purvis, speaking to our man on the ground at the World Cup, podcaster and England fan Don Betts, and also talking all things Germany with Adam Kahn. Plus, we're going to ask how on earth did Eric Dyer manage to get into Qatar with a suitcase Full of herbs. Um, with me today is, of course, Hannah East. Have you seen? Have you seen this, Hannah? Eric Dyer's given an interview. He's, he drinks that mate tea stuff. Mate tea, matey tea, matcha? not matey. <laughs> Something like matey was um, bubble bath in the nineties, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> with a big head, the hat for the. the oh, I loved head. a bit of matey. Um, I bet you did. I was always, I was always sad when the bottle had to go in the bin because I felt like I'd got really attached to it. And then you'd be like, "Let's keep it. What are you going to do with it?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. Because yeah, we'll have eighty in the bathroom. Um, but Eric Dyer did an interview on England's Instagram. It's him and Harry Kane, and Eric Dyer gets out this little like travel leather travel case with like a flask and stuff in it, and he's like, "Yeah, I um, I take it everywhere with me actually. Um, Kieran Trippier got me this case, and uh, it's a little flask for my uh, hot water. And there's um, and this is a little pouch. I'll keep the herbs. And Harry Kane is like, that's ridiculous. So like, why do you take that everywhere with you? That's insane." <laughs> What I like, find so funny is that you're telling this story and taking the mickey out of him, of Eric Dyer, but you absolutely love him. We did a segment on the podcast about his vegetable patch. Well, this is my question. Did he, he, he grow the, the herbs, herbs himself? He grew the herbs and brought them himself. But then he said, he's like, yeah, to be fair, my suitcase coming over here was mostly just full of herbs. It's like, <laughs> you will get nicked for that. <laughs> and that's why he talks the way you do an impression of him. <laughs> He's gone. He's, he's gone. He's gone to another country with lots of little see-through bags of green herbs. Did they not open it and go, so oh, sorry, what is? Yeah. <laughs> like, what? They probably didn't search his bags. They're like, oh, Eric, bless him. And it turns out he's an international drug dealer. Yeah. Um, he's, not. He grows, he's not. He grows butternuts. He'll be fine. Let him through. <laughs> um, right. Anyway. Let's get on with the show. It's time to talk to Belil Zafar now, comedian and Arsenal fan. Um, we're going to be talking all things England, Iran, his favourite moments of the uh, tournament so far as well. Hannah, I said to you a little bit, a little while ago, by the way, didn't I, that I, um, I watched every game yesterday. Yeah, that's why you're a bit cross-eyed today. I've sort of forgotten what happened in any of them. Yeah, because I was like, which was your favourite game? You were like, uh, I can't really remember. I liked all like... the football. Yeah, it was good. Just went to the pub. Um, right, Bilal is with us now. Hello, mate. How you doing? Hey, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. I'm, I'm particularly enjoying the, the green screen backdrop. Thank you. That's, that's, very, that's very professional. Well, yeah, I mean, I could put stuff in there. I actually thought I'd be professional and not have it on. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? But then it's always it, it always looks like it's... All, it's always obvious that I have a green screen. That you've yes. like gone, gone to your auntie's house and you're like, quick, I've got a Zoom call. Get the <laughs> yeah. curtain up. That kind of vibe. <laughs> exactly. And oh. what, have, what have your thoughts been so far then on England? Oh, uh, pretty disappointed <laughs> last I think time. That's, that echoes the nation, doesn't it? Yeah, man. It was just, I think like a lot of people, I had friends over. I, I had two bowls of different crisps. Oh, what, yeah. What flavours? Flavors? So they are, it's... <laughs> They're like, I think they're like an Eastern European brand or something that are in a shop near me. And they're really nice. One of them was like a kind of paprika one. Nice. And the other one was like a, some kind of, I don't know, some kind of sour cream and spicy thing, but very nice. What dips did you go for? 
Oh, I had um, so I, I had mango chutney in the house. Oh, wow. bit harsh, <laughs> harsh, bit bougie. Yeah. yeah, I know. So we dipped everything in there. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but I was like so I was so disappointed. I should have known that would happen. I think I just really got my hopes up after the first game. I just thought I did think they would score. Yeah, uh, you know. You'd yeah, you'd I was devastated. Hope so. What have you um? What have you made of the uh, the various fans really, really living up to cultural stereotypes? Um, we've had Mounties at the Canada yeah. game, uh, people dressed as Captain America, um, the Japanese uh, team leaving origami swans in their dressing room after oh, losing nice. to Germany, and um, Brits showing typical cultural sensitivity, the England fans dressing as Crusaders um, in yeah. Qatar. Yeah. What, what have you made of, of the World Cup and all the noise around it so far? I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> um, what's the deal with? Um, are they are they not selling alcohol now? What what? Where did that go? So there's so there's uh, booze is available around the stadium, forty eight hours before. There's no alcohol allowed in the stadium. You can, however, get a zero percent Heineken mm-hmm. um, or a zero percent Budweiser. I forget who the sponsors are, and you can get alcohol though if you're in the posh seats. So. Obviously, there's an ideological objection up yeah. to a certain cash threshold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's classic. Yeah. <laughs> so most people, unless you're basically really rich, won't be able to drink. Right. Yeah, pretty much. And we've seen people sneaking booze in in binoculars and stuff, which is quite a hanner. I know you're a big fan of. Yeah, well, I've actually got an umbrella and uh, I take it when I, I don't mean like on the school run, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes if I'm having a bad week. Parents and you unscrew the top, yeah, <laughs> unscrew the top of it and you can put like, I'd say a full, like, well, nearly a pint of of alcohol or spirit if you're having a bad week again. Um, and then you can just carry that around. So if you go somewhere, you can take the lid off and nobody would know that it's actually a, a drink container. Wow, that's like, like James Bond. So cool, yeah. 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 Got it on Amazon, yeah. If, if you'll find yourself drinking a pint of anything out of an umbrella, I think your <laughs> life's gone wrong. <laughs> that's what I always think. Um, so, Bilal, have there been any games or, or any moments that particularly stood out for you so far? Um, I really enjoyed um, the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia beating Argentina. Uh, that was pretty fun because I was literally what like the main reason I was watching is because I'd I'm doing fantasy football, World Cup fantasy football, and I'd captained Messi. So I'm literally watching to see how many he scores, right? And then he mm. scored that penalty, and then he was doing all right, and then that twist was absolutely brilliant. That was great, wasn't it? And then, uh, unfortunately, I couldn't watch the Japan-Germany game, but I, w- I love that comeback as well. I would have really loved to watch that live. Um, yeah, some of the upsets have been quite fun so far. Um, even yesterday, Spain-Germany was quite fun. Well, the Germans uh, were kind of cast in the in the position of underdogs. It's, you weirdly find yourself wanting the Germans to win as the, the, the plucky underdogs, which I've mm-hmm. never seen in international football before. <laughs> yeah, but also I am just loving like how there doesn't really seem to be a clear favourite, mm. which is quite nice. Like in the past, yeah. we've had like Spain just look, you know, amazing from the mm. first game and it just looks like they're going to win. But now it's, I, I think it's quite hard to call. Yeah, Belgium flopping as well. That's been interesting. Well, there is an otter in Japan called Tayo, yeah. um, yes. Tayo the psychic otter, who um, who picked Japan to beat Germany the other day. He is a Japanese otter, though, so he might be biased. That's my only that is my only question. He's in, in a zoo in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, but who do you think is going to win the tournament? Oh God! All right, I don't. Uh, let me think. I don't want to say. Everyone's saying Brazil. Mm. I don't think they actually will. 
Well, Neymar's oh, foot is about five times the size it was at the start of the tournament now. So I'm not, I'm not sure how much of a part he's going to play. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Argentina. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Fun, fun prediction. What are you, I'm going to, I'm just going to ask, what are you like at football? Are you, are you decent? Do you play football when you were younger? Is it your, your thing? Uh, I haven't played it for years, um, right. but I go quite a lot. I've, I'm an Arsenal season ticket holder. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would, so, have never, I would have never known that to, to look at your outfit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and have you got any embarrassing stories from playing football when you were younger as a kid? I mean, I was rubbish at it. Right. So that's kind of embarrassing every time, right? I was all right, actually, when I was little. I used to imagine I was Fabregas. That was around <laughs> the time when he was really good yeah. at Arsenal. And I, I was quite good at passing. I wasn't very good at anything else, really. So I'd imagine I was him. Yeah. Well, that's how I played. I um, I Fat Ronaldo is my favourite footballer of all time. Yeah. And I uh, had a long-sleeved Inter Milan shirt which had number oh, nine, cool. Joe Naldo on it. So not just a hat rack, but I was, I was quite a fat kid. So I did look like him after the knee injury and rapid weight gain, right. uh, but couldn't play like him. I'm when just... you said Joe Naldo, I assumed that it was a fake shirt. I that, yeah, that your gran had got from the market. By yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's Joe's favourite player. Um, yeah. yeah, like the Rolex, which is R-O-L-E-K-S. That one. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's been a story in the paper this week that Will Ferrell and Arsenal goalkeeper Aaron Ramsdale have got a beef. So Will Ferrell uh, slagged off the England team on a rival radio station. And Aaron Ramsdale uh, came back and said, Anchorman, more like Wankerman. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> Which is superb behaviour from Aaron. Um, I just wondered, have you, have you ever had a nemesis or got involved in a, in a war of words, Bilal? It happens to comedians a quite a bit on social media. I, do, I mean, yeah, every day pretty much on Twitter, yeah. That's pretty standard. Um, I, I do, I enjoy winding people up on Twitter quite a lot. Um it never the thing is i don't take it very seriously like i used to take social media quite seriously and get in debates and stuff and now i'm just very silly on there so like i i do stuff just to make my friends laugh on twitter but people would always believe it and then you end up just going along with it and that's quite fun like um what i would do for a bit is anytime someone did something terrible like when matt hancock before all this celeb stuff when he first had that affair I tweeted that um, there's a lot of criticism around Matt Hancock, but I actually know him and he's a good guy, right? <laughs> Which is obviously stupid. But the amount of people that jumped on me and were like telling me why he's not a good guy and all of this stuff. And then you just double down and start inviting people to have dinner with you and Matt Hancock and stuff. And it just kicks off. It, it just keeps spirals. going. It yeah. just spirals out of control. Me and Matt Hancock that. are going to be in Burger King Watford on Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> the sh- I always say the shard. I always say meet us at the Shard. I don't even know what it's like in the Shard, yeah. Um, Sounds good, though, doesn't it? It does, yeah. If there's a picture um, of you in the mail next week, you and Matt yeah. Hancock having dinner at the Shard, that'll blow my mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Bilal, how can we catch you? Because you're, are you touring at the moment? How can people come and watch yeah. you? Uh, so the best place to find me is uh, my handle on everything is Zaffa Cakes, Z-A-F-A-R Cakes on Twitter and Twitch I do a lot of stuff on. Um, and I'm going to be going on tour around the UK and Ireland in February, March and April. So there's all the information's on my social media. 
Yeah. Wicked. Okay, thank you. Amazing. Nice thank one, you so much. Thank you very much, mate. Cheers, Cheers for having me. Cheers. So the German squad have suffered a shock defeat uh, against Japan and have recently been in the news for their protest against FIFA's ban on the One Love armbands. Now, during the national anthem, they placed their hands over their mouths to symbolise being gagged by FIFA. They also chose to wear rainbow-coloured boots as well. And I'm really delighted to say I'm joined by German football expert Adam Kahn. I've got to ask you if you're any relation to Oliver. Unfortunately not. That would be something, right? To <laughs> I mean, that would be pretty so, special yeah. to start your intro, yeah. really, wouldn't it? No, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint, but but none there, unfortunately. <laughs> well, tell me what has been the reaction to Germany's performance so far? Yeah, pretty mixed bag. I think there's a, a lot of, I mean, not a lot, but a lot more optimism, you could say, after how that Spain game ended. I think once Germany made those three substitutions in the 70th minute, it, it's almost sparked their entire tournament into life. And yeah, it really, really brought them back into this competition and now they have decent chances of making it to the knockout stages. But yeah, yeah all in all, it's still just a lot of malaise from that, that post-Yudulu era, the, the post-2014 World Cup victory. A lot of that is still hanging over this tournament, losing to Japan in the style that they did. And also just seeing how, how for large stretches of the Spain game, they, they were dominated. And we see how Spain side, who also needed to reinvent themselves after a lot of victory, how they just seem far further along that cycle than Germany. Yeah, and talk to me a little bit more about that shock defeat against Japan. What was like the reaction to that? Because I know there's always going to be pressure, isn't there, on Germany going into uh, a World Cup tournament, but that must, it's been a bit of a shock for, for us so far. Yeah, I think that that it's almost been a bigger shock outside of Germany than inside of Germany, because I think right. inside of Germany, there wasn't as much optimism going into this tournament. I think that although you look at a lot of the talent in the squad, you see this, this Bayern Munich core that are, amongst the best clubs in the world right now, and you see how many of these players are from that side, you'd think that this would be a team that could, could compete for a title. But I think within Germany, a lot of people would be contented. This side just makes it out of the group stage. And regarding Japan, that seemed like the perfect opponent to expose what Germany's weaknesses were. It's a side that is extremely talented, but one in which Germany is still the favorite. So Germany need to make more of the game. And Japan has so much quality going forward with their pace, with their position. And we saw how this German defense that against Spain as well, how, how at times they're just completely isolated and they don't necessarily have a good function together and how these individual parts came apart against, against Japan. And yeah, Japan ruthlessly exposed that. And it sounds to me, I'm not saying you sound negative at all about Germany, but it sounds like there's, there's areas to improve on and things that you would want to see change with Germany. What would they be? Yeah, I think that, for example, we saw specifically in the last 20 minutes how good a real central number nine does this German national team. Germany, of course, since Miroslav Klose's retirement, haven't really produced that elite center forward that, that any national team really needs. And we saw again in this World Cup so far, Kai Havertz was used there against Japan and didn't look like the type of player that his talent really should, should provide against um, Spain as well. We had Thomas Muller in those areas. And again, another extremely, extremely talented player, but just not someone who's good at occupying the center forward position and bringing on Niklas Fulkrud in the end, a really just, just basic modern number nine. He's, he's not exactly a player who's going to grab all the headlines. I mean, he spent a lot of his career at, at lower sides in the Bundesliga. Even last season was in the second Bundesliga, but he's been in a rich vein of form and just bringing in some more of those traditional number nine aspects 
holding balls up, going for goal, being a bit selfish in the final third. That brought so much into this game. And, and he got the goal in the end that brought Germany back into this game and also the competition. Because players can't win, but in, in especially tournaments like this, they can't be too selfish on yeah. the ball. But then equally, sometimes you like be a bit more selfish yeah. and that, that would be yeah. perfectly okay, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think what you see in competitions like this, it's it's just there's such fine margins and, and, and every little moment is just so much more important. Instead of a 34 yeah. game season, you, you have three games or, or even less at times that, that really matter and need to make the most of opportunities. And like you say, sometimes that is just going for goal to ensure that maybe there's just a chance that it goes in, even though nine times out of 10, it won't work. You never know how many of those opportunities you get. No, you don't. And they need to take them as soon as they get yeah. them. What's been kind of your highlight of the World Cup so far? Give me two goals that you've absolutely loved. I think I know which ones you're going to say. But I think, say of anyway. course, you have, you have to go for the future goal because that kind of brought this, this entire team back into the tournament. But I guess from a neutral perspective, I think there was a lot to love about that that late Iranian goal that that brought them the yeah. win over Wales. I think going into that one as a neutral, you always like to see a bit of excitement in the last yeah. few minutes. And then also one, I think I really enjoyed Alfonso Davies' goal for Canada yesterday. Yeah, because you saw it's a player who missed the penalty in the first match, and and yeah. just such a talented player, and can't have waited so long to get on the stage, and then you almost missed that opportunity when you could have gone ahead against a Belgium side that showed weakness. So yeah, having having him get that moment to kind of rewrite his error is something that yeah. that yeah, as a neutral, I really enjoyed. And you could tell that it meant so much to him as yeah. well, didn't it? With the celebration, you could just like sense that passion. Um, going back to Germany, because as I mentioned when I introduced you, Germany made the news after protesting against FIFA's decision uh, to ban the One Love armband by covering their mouths in the team photo. What was kind of the reaction to that in Germany? Yeah, I think it's it's almost disappointing that Germany lost this game because so much of, of, of this game is now or it's or so much of that action is now overshadowed by by the result on the pitch. I mean, after yeah. after losing to Japan, it's hard to really for the German media to focus on that, right? Because all the people want to hear about then is is how this German national team were, were able to lose to Japan. So I understand that in one respect, but it would have been nice to see a bit more in the aftermath really talked about this. Cause because I think that yeah. Yeah, although I think we're all frustrated of how, how these European nations have handled the, the, the one love armband fiasco, I think that it would have at least been, been righteous to, to give them credit for still doing something because we've seen so many other nations almost use FIFA decisions as an out to now do nothing to, to completely yeah. silence themselves against any of the criticism against FIFA ahead of this tournament. So I found it at least powerful that Germany tried to remain and, and still do something to even if it's a little at do something to show that, hey, we're, we're still firmly in favor of this, regardless of how you yeah. guys want, want to silence all of our actions. One final question to you then, Adam, who's going to be in the final and who's going to win? Ooh, I think that, I think that's, I, it's tough because it's almost like your, your predictions ahead of the tournament are kind of thrown out the window with, for example, Argentina's formed, a lot of people had them highly, but also yeah. some other nations like Belgium, for example, but one who is really, really exciting me about this tournament is Spain. I think they look really, really talented. They look yeah. like a side who are young and hungry, but also have been together long enough where they where they play like a club side almost. Yeah. So I see yeah. them having the potential to go really far. And it's hard to write off Brazil. I mean, at the time of recording, they've only played one match and, and they did need a bit of fortune to get through that. But it feels like a nation that will grow and grow into this tournament. And if Neymar's yeah. fully fit, then I, I, I can't see many nations having a better chance. 
Okay. Well, you've given me a few teams there sitting yeah. on the fence, Adam. That's fine. That's what the World Cup's all about, yeah. isn't it? And it's the excitement around it. Thanks so much for speaking to us. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me Thank on. Thank you. Bye. So it's time for the big conversation. Today, we're talking about drinking and football. Um, so obviously, this is the part where we have an in-depth discussion about the controversies facing this year's World Cup. And in one of the big controversies, of course, has been the last-minute alcohol ban um, in the stadiums. Obviously, disappointing a lot of fans and major sponsors of the tournament. <laughs> right, obviously, we associate British football fans, English football fans with drinking. It's something that culturally goes on elsewhere as well. But to discuss exactly why there is that link between football and alcohol and perhaps the the tensions that it might cause at the Qatar World Cup. We're joined by Dr. Richard Purvis, Senior Research Fellow in the Institute for Social Marketing at the University of Stirling. Um, so let's bring Dr. Purvis in now. Um, it's a massive thing when we uh, talk about football and alcohol and certainly something that kind of ever since I've been going to the football pretty much, to be honest, from the age of kind of 16 onwards, it kind of changes it's not from... 16, you've been drinking since earlier than that. No, but I mean at the football, but yeah, it... <laughs> yeah look at me. I've been at it since reception <laughs> in my Tommy Tippy cup. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a massive part of football, isn't it, Anna? Yeah, huge. And it, it's actually embarrassing to think that it is such a big part of football isn't it like we we kind of hi Richard um thanks uh, for joining us we, we're just kind of like reminiscing really about is is it a bit embarrassing that you associate football and alcohol and it's such a big part of the game is that is that sad what do you think I don't think that's sad no it's not the word I would I would use yeah um looking back to some of the research we've done you know alcohol has played a, a huge part in in football cultures for a long time, you know, from mm. the foundation of, of many football clubs and right up to the present day where we've, we've obviously had these issues around um, the availability of Qatar. Um, so it depends what perspective you look at it, you know, for many it could play a positive role, you know, socially bonding, you know, gathering together, a bit of socialising tradition. But if you're looking at it from a purely public health perspective, then yes, you could potentially say it should have no no position, no role around um, sport. So it just depends what perspective you're really looking at it from. It's funny, isn't it, as well? Because I kind of, I, and I think there is, there is obviously, it's, there's a link, and you kind of make these excuses, don't you? I sort of think like, oh my god, if I'm going to sit through Spurs <laughs> suffering a drab one nil defeat at home to Brighton in January, I will need a pint. <laughs> That's kind of, it's kind of the way we think. But it's not, it's not just Britain, is it? I mean, in Germany, for example, you're allowed to to drink in the stands. But is it kind of a a specifically Western cultural phenomenon or, or European? Not particularly, no. Um, I mean, if we take an example of maybe South America, um, we know in Brazil, you know, that alcohol was available around the stadiums, but they actually stopped alcohol being sold at the stadiums because there was a lot of violence around that. So historically, you also get that link between alcohol and violence, which yeah. is why much of many of the regulations come in. It's not really for public health means, it's to try and prevent disorder around that. So you can't really say it's, it's a historically European, obviously, Northern European, Eastern European, you know, these are the heaviest drinking countries in the world. Um, but it's not always around, you know, football. It's not around, it's not always just beer either. It can be spirits and stuff like that. So it's not specific to, to European, certainly not certainly not specific to the UK. But we do have uh, a, an interesting relationship, shall we say, with alcohol in the UK. Yeah, I like that. Interesting, shall we say. <laughs> well, from your own research, do you think that the, the ban in Qatar will impede fans' sort of experience uh, of the tournament? Yeah, I mean, it can do for some, yeah. And as, as I've kind of said, you know, alcohol could play a really key role for many people, and not for everyone. And that's the thing, it's not for everyone. And cultures change, and young people, particularly coming to the game now, 
maybe not drink as much, maybe older people who are driving to the game, they might not drink as much. But especially if you're going abroad to these major tournaments, alcohol plays, you know, a key role for, for national teams, you know, going abroad. It can also be used for, it's got that kind of, the almost hedonism to it, you know, that kind of going abroad and it's, it's a big party. It's a, a party yeah. for you, however long you're there. Um, you might detect I'm a Scotsman. So normally when we're there, we're not there that long. Um, <laughs> there. English team a bit different, you know, they tend to go a bit further in tournaments uh, and actually get to the tournaments. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but alcohol is available in Qatar. Um, it's just not available as readily as we thought it was maybe going to be outside the stadiums. But obviously there's, there's hotels, there's bars, there's a fan zones. Um, it's obviously very expensive, you know, compared to places at home. Maybe we're catching up to that now, but it's very expensive for people. So it is available. And if there's one thing we know about football fans, if, if they want to have a drink and if it's if it's somewhere, they will find it. Um, but yeah, if, it depends. You, you really have to speak to supporters who've been at the matches to find out what the atmosphere is like. Yeah. But I'm guessing, you know, I'm guessing it's not having too much of an impact at the moment. Well, we are going to be we're going to be speaking to to an England fan who's out in Qatar actually to find out what what he's thinking. I love the idea as well. They've got these um like sobriety paddocks out yes. there. So basically, if you are a bit drunk, then it's illegal to be drunk in public in Qatar. But if you are a bit drunk and you're kind of a, a fan out there, you get a bit of leeway. But they put you in a special area to sober up. Which I don't know why they don't just run a camera there because that that for me that's TV gold. I would yeah. sit and watch that over i'm a celebrity that is yeah the drunk pen um, but budweiser obviously a big sponsor of the world cup this year um they want compensation from fifa um because they're a sponsor of the world cup but you can't drink beer in the stadiums unless you're in the posh seats that is um do you think that these sponsors though have a i suppose an impact on people's drinking habits i'm thinking in particular so obviously um you don't see cigarette advertising anymore packets are now um unbranded there's a massive call to remove gambling related sponsors from football even that's a huge money spinner for, for football clubs um do you think that these well alcohol related sponsors they they do have an impact well yes they do yeah um, i mean research has shown obviously sponsorships part of marketing one form of marketing i mean all from research that people are exposed to marketing you know especially young people and um, they'll tend to uh, Drink, start to drink it earlier, or they'll start to drink heavier if they've already started drinking. Uh, and we know that it has an impact on consumption. Um, alcohol companies will often tell you it's all about brand switching. You know, it's just about having this brand and that brand has no effect on overall consumption, that kind of thing. That's just not true um, because research has shown this. So we know that exposure to these sponsorship, high profile sponsorship, you know, it does have an impact on people's consumption or people wanting to use that product. That's the reason they pay millions and millions and millions of pounds for it. You know, it's not just simply just to, you know, just to have their brand visible. It's because they know that that will contribute to people wanting to consume their brand or, or feeling the need to consume their brand. So yeah, it is a fact that, you know, that is, that does lead to, you know, people consuming these products. And because there's certain sports you go to where you, they just don't sell alcohol, you just wouldn't even dream of of buying um, booze when you go to say watch a, a hockey match or a netball match or something like that. So what's the what's the history behind booze and football? You can go yeah right back to the founding of some clubs. As I say, you know some clubs founded at pubs, um, hotels, that kind of stuff. It's always been because it's more of a, a working class sport. Mm. It's always had its roots in that kind of working class heritage. Um, so leisure pursuits at the weekend, you know, you would they would go to the pub and that's where they would form and that would be, and that's always been around a lot of football for a lot of people, as I say, not for everyone and things have changed, but that's tended to be historically the sort of roots of 
um, working class kind of men's um, leisure pursuit, basically. So at the weekend, they'd work all week, and at the weekend, it would be pub and football, and that would be it. You know, that would be where the, the roots come from. Um, but it's, traditionally, still, it's, it's seen as kind of a, a safe space or a central space for people bonding together, meeting before a match, meeting after a match to discuss the football. Um, it's always been as that kind of what we call a football space, you know, um, something that's been central. You know, they don't tend to meet at a Starbucks or a cafe or, you know, a Marks restaurant. And Spencer, Marks and Spencer's Cafe before. Yeah, it, it doesn't tend to be the same kind of environment, you know. It's not seen as a safe space. But, yeah, it's traditionally rooted in that kind of working class masculine uh, heritage, really. Yeah. And finally, how do you how do you see drinking habits changing? Because I think it's really interesting, actually, what you said about um, young people and drinking because I went to a work party a couple of years ago and it really noticed it. So myself, kind of the senior producers, the management team at, at the radio station, we were all on it, just like, yeah, work party, where like buying and all the youngsters were kind of like sipping one drink and they were like the responsible ones, like, oh come on guys, maybe slow down. <laughs> do you do you think that, that drinking habits around football might change? I could see that happening. Yeah. I mean in wider society we are seeing young people, you know, being less and less interested in alcohol or perhaps even postponing that experimentation with alcohol. I mean, it could be to do with, you know, price, availability, that kind of thing. They tend not to hang around in pubs, that kind of stuff. So, you know, even the social space in the UK is completely changing. Um, but with young people going to football, um, I think that's still a major role for them. Because mm. um, the evidence that we've seen, the younger guys going to the football are still tending to drink. It's almost as a way of initiation into this crowd, as a way of kind yeah. of proving the legitimacy as a football sport for some of them. Again, this is not, this is a wide generalisation if you're saying this about everyone, but um, yeah, it still tends to play a role. But in the future, you know, just depending on what the availability is like, price, that kind of thing, how they're getting to the match, that kind of stuff, when the match is, you know, again, if it's, you know, Wednesday kind of cold, Wednesday night kind of thing, they may be less likely to drink than mm. Saturday afternoon or something like that. So yeah, all these factors come into play. And where can we find out more about, about your research? Because it is it's such a fascinating topic. Yeah, sure. Um, so we have a website, alcoholfc.org. Um, but if, you, if you're interested, I just did a blog for the Institute of Alcohol Studies. So on their website, you'll see that blog that I've done where I talk about Qatar and alcohol availability. And that has a couple of links to papers that we've published as well. So we have a couple of papers published, one being reviewed just now. The process is ongoing. So the research project's still going at the moment, but we're hoping to get some more outputs in the future. Um, amazing. Thank you very much, Dr. Richard Purvis. Thank you. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much. Very much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Uh, right. As I said a little bit earlier on, I caught up with England fan podcaster Dom Betts, who is out in Qatar. You all right, mate? All right, Joe, mate. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's been a while, but you're you're living it up in Qatar. What's it been like so far? Yeah, it's been it's been amazing, really. I mean, a lot of people, you know, were worried, especially my parents, when I said I'm going to Qatar for a month. Mm. I've never been to the Middle East before this trip, so I wasn't didn't really know what to expect. So I've been, been to the Far East, but obviously that's a lot lot different. But I can't I can't really fault the place so far. Really, it's been an amazing fan experience so far. Obviously, it's different to a lot of tournaments where you know you're not got, you haven't got fans in all different cities across the country, like it was in Russia, for example, or Brazil or South Africa. Mm. You know, all the fans from all the countries are in one city. They're all you're all drinking in the same bars. You're all visiting the same places. So it's been fan experience wise, it's been amazing. You know, hospitality has been amazing. You know, people were talking about you know booze ban and things like. That. I'm telling you, there's plenty of places you, <laughs> you can get a beer if you want. If you want, if you want in Qatar, you know, there's you can see sort of the old school style of Qatar where you know with sort of the marble buildings. You have got the massive high rises near where I'm staying in the West Bay area. 
um yeah so it's, it's been amazing so far obviously it's different because it, it, it'll be like if the world cup was just hosted solely in london mm. <laughs> it's, it's it's that smaller place but um yeah so the the only issue is really there's, there's a few bits of infrastructure around certain grounds which haven't been the greatest but right you know but but it just means you need to get to the ground slightly earlier than you usually would for, for a game in england for example but yeah, so but as any if you're going to an England away game in a foreign country like Italy or Germany, you're you're going to get to the ground early anyway. So as long as you as long as you want, and a lot of these grounds you know haven't hosted games before, so they're, they're not sure what the infrastructure is. Like some places haven't got necessarily a direct place for taxis to drop you off. Some don't have metro stations. But I said now it's now it's sort of been a week and grounds have ho- hosted multiple games. Mm. You're really getting an idea of the infrastructure, and yeah, I mean. The, the well, the, our USA game the other night was wasn't even in Doha. It's in another city called Al Khor, which is like fifty kilometers away. But right. we literally got we literally got a shuttle bus straight back into central Doha. So yeah, I can't really fault the place so far. You know, from my experience so far, obviously everyone it, people talk about the migrant work issues and the mm. LGBTQ issues, but um, from just what what we've been speaking to local Qataris, it's, it's, I think it's just been amazing so far. And yeah, I can't fault the place. Hospitality's been amazing, and hopefully it continues for the next few weeks. Well, what's your experience been of um, you, you mentioned the locals and kind of it seems like you're, you're soaking up the local culture and, and kind of a lot of the chat we've been hearing has been any issues that people have had with officials and that kind of thing has been FIFA, not local Qataris. And I mean, what, what's kind of that been like mixing with all the locals? Because I think people were worried about a bit of a culture clash. Yeah, so a lot, a lot of around grounds you've got, there's a lot, of, there's not necessarily police, they're, they're just, they're, they, their name is just security. So they're like, they're pointing people which direction, which gates to go in. If there's been an issue with your ticket, there's a ticket resolution centre at the stadium itself. Anyone who's sort of had any issues, bring anything, so maybe a flag or a battery pack. If you argue your case long enough, they usually just let you through. I, I initiated my battery pack at the first game and I was like, no, the rule stated you're allowed one battery pack didn't matter about the size or, you know, the wattage. And, yeah, they eventually let p- people through. Some people had issue with the flags, but then there was, like, a flag resolution centre. People went there, showed you got the right approval. Then you went through. So there's certain things which is you're not ty- you're not entirely sure. But I said, security-wise, it's this, you literally, when, when you're approaching the ground, you go through one checkpoint, which is, you know, you, you empty your pockets and you go through sort of like an air, airport-style scanner pretty much. Then uh, you pick your stuff off and then you're in the perimeter of the ground where, you know, there is some things around the grounds. And then you make, make, make your way in, really. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not been too much sort of policing as such. Mm. It's, if it's, it's there's a lot sort of security, you know. There's there's there's, there's people with like um, megaphones and phone fingers pointing you which which way to be going to, you know. Like it, the joke's been because like near every ground and near every metro station, you got you got people with megaphones just shouting shouting metro station this way, and people have just been chanting it in bars and stuff because it's at like every <laughs> single station. Um, but yeah, so it's mainly been security. But I said, me personally, I haven't had any issues with anything so far. And we've kind of seen stuff, particularly uh, at the Wales USA game, I think it was. And you had a former Welsh captain having her rainbow bucket hat taken off her, that kind of thing. You mentioned the, the flag issue and the flag resolution centre. Is it kind of the idea is nothing provocative, or have you noticed people particularly kind of stuff with rainbows or LGBT symbols on it? Kind of what's what's that been like? So, like, if you're talking about flags, the flag process is before the tournament. They stated if your flag was over two meters by one point five meters, I think you need to email uh, FIFA or 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 Qatar or the, or the Qatar organization, Supreme Committee, I think is what they're called. And then you know you need to get approval for which games you've been taking it to. Um, I said I don't know anyone who hasn't been able to get their flag in. People have had issues when they've gone to the security checkpoint, but once they've gone to the resolution center and have shown they've got the right approval, they've been fine. 
Um, obviously, main, main, main things that not be included is sort of any, anything overly political, but um, there's been plenty of, you know, Palestine flags, for example, in, in, in all of the games. Um, being um, so, and I, I don't, I haven't seen anyone not being allowed in with anything. Obviously, I've seen the videos and uh, pictures circulating on social media, but I said from from when I've gone in, there's there's been no issues whatsoever, and it's just there might be a slight hiccup when you first go through, but once you've sorted it out, it seems to be perfectly fine. And were you were you worried going out there about the potential for a culture clash and that kind of thing? Because England fans and traditionally kind of well some elements of England fans have fallen foul of local authorities and stuff did you worry there might be a few cultural misunderstandings I don't think so because I the, the fans who are going to cause trouble don't really seem to fly anywhere unless it's on Ryanair or EasyJet <laughs> if, it, <laughs> if, if it's anywhere further that involves you know BA or Qatar Airways or not, not out there's been no fan trouble with England fans at all out here I think the only thing I've seen was between Argentina and Mexico fans and that's because there's so many of them everywhere a lot of people who haven't sort of got accommodation booked for the last 16 are hoping uh, Mexico or Argentina get knocked out just so it frees up a lot, a lot of the a lot of the accommodation because they're in they're in the, they're probably there's probably 100,000 of each out here it's, it's, it's crazy Whoa. um but no I said it's it's, it's it, there's been no there's a bit there's been no trouble because all, all the people who want to come here are going to football I mean I've, I've done pretty much a game a day I didn't go to one yesterday but um, yeah, it was. It, but a lot of people, some people, just doing loads of football. Some people doing like two or three games in a day, which I think would just be absolutely knackering, personally. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, but it's no. I said it's. I'm, there's been no trouble with England fans because the England fans who come here are the ones who travel everywhere, and the ones aren't usually the ones causing the trouble. And you said um, that you're all drinking in the same bar. Now we've been led to understand that it's quite hard to come by drink. But is that what you found? No, not at all. I mean, if, if it like there's there's this there's You're loads, like a there's loads of when it comes to a pint, though, mate. You will sniff. Yeah, and I, I, will, I will sniff <laughs> out. But it's but it's it's a bit like Dubai. If you've been if you've been to Dubai before, you know you have to, all bars sort of attached mm. to hotels. So you go into the hotel and and then from there there's the bar. So for example, before England games, we've been drinking in the Radisson Blue, and you you literally go you go into the hotel, you cut you come out around the back, and they got they got a massive beer garden. Obviously, a lot of them aren't aren't outside areas. There a lot of them are inside. But I was on one near a place called Sukwakif, which is sort of a, an old uh, what you typically think of somewhere in the Middle East with loads of local restaurants and stalls selling stuff. Um, and yeah, that, that that hotel had a had a rooftop with loads of screens and a bar and things like that. So, I mean, there's plenty of places where you can find it. You know, certain certain countries are choosing to just stick in certain bars. For example, the Welsh fans have got somewhere called the Curry House in, in the Intercontinental, and literally across across the hallway from that one is a place called the Hive, and that's where the Australians have been drinking. Um, so yeah, it's you know if you if you go on Google and have a look, the the bars the bars are popping up, and you know people are sort of sharing information. Different supporters groups are oh, this bar was good, this how much this was, so, and I think you know people say oh but you're paying like you know I, I say average pipe for a drink. in happy hour you're probably paying eight pound, and then if you're going in normal and you want to get a pint you're probably paying ten to twelve. I mean people say oh, like really, yeah I said people people say it's really expensive. I was like we knew it was going to be expensive coming out. It's not like a culture shock to us that yeah. we're, we're paying this much money for alcohol. And for example, the bar I was in last night, uh, you, you paid 40 quid and you got five bottles of beer. So eight, eight pound a bottle each. I mean, if you go, and for example, if, if that was a rooftop bar in central London, like that's, if that's Madison's or something, or, mm. the, or, the, or the other rooftop bar near St. Paul's Cathedral, you're going to be pretty much paying that anyway. So, it's, if you if you're from if you live in London, it's probably not that much uh, more, and it's it's just like about budgeting yourself. It's not like it's not like a, a normal England trip where you sort of it's so condensed into sort of three days. Where obviously this is a bit more relaxed. So you know, yes, mm. it will we'll be drinking a fair bit on England days, but on days we not go to England games, you might have a, if we're not going to a game in the evening, we might and we might have a few. Like you know, I did I, I didn't drink last night till about ten p.m. Um, and you know, most places are shutting at the same time, about two o'clock, three o'clock. So 
Yeah, I said it's, we, it's everyone's sort of wondering what it would be like. But once you once you've been here for sort of a day or two, you sort of you sort of understand, and people have sort of adapted to the lifestyle and culture here. And I haven't spoke to any fan from any country who's had a bad experience so far. What's what's the atmosphere been like in the grounds? Because obviously people aren't drinking at halftime and stuff, and like directly before the games. To me, that doesn't sound too bad because then sometimes you do get people at the football who are absolutely steaming, and maybe it gets around that, but. One of the things we've seen as well is stadiums not necessarily full and FIFA coming back with kind of um, uh, attendances that don't match the capacity of the stadiums and stuff. What, what's the atmosphere been like in the grounds? It's, I think it's varied from game to game, really. Like some some games had really good atmosphere. So where England's first game was against Iran was the Khalifa International Stadium, which was the stadium that was here already. That's been here sort of 10, 15 years. So it was hard to get an atmosphere in that because it's one of those, you know, a bit like the Olympic Stadion in Berlin or the Olympico in Rome, where it's got the athletic mm. tracks around it. So it was a bit hard to create an atmosphere there. But the rest of the grounds, obviously, all built for this tournament, they're very much European stadiums. You know, you're very mm. close to the pitch. And it depends what the teams are, really. Like, I didn't go to the Argentina Mexico game the other night, but that sounded, everyone who went there said it was absolutely crazy. Um, well, I was at the France Denmark game the other night. I ended up in the Denmark end and it was good, <laughs> good atmosphere there. Uh, today, Cameroon, Serbia, you know, you know Cameroon fans sort of to my right on the other side of the grounds had the Serbian fans. So I said the only game really I've been to that's had a poor atmosphere was probably Spain, Costa Rica. Mm. Um, but obviously, the, you know, they were, they were demolishing them. I mean, the, the most chance in that game were actually coming from Mexico fans who'd gone to that game as a neutral, chanting <laughs> Mexico and chanting about Herving Lozano. So yeah, I think yeah, I think I think it depends what game you go to. I mean, everyone, but all, all the games have had, have had good, good atmospheres. Obviously, you know, a lot of the a lot of the games have had goalless first halves. But I mean, except except for the coming obviously today 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 being Monday, obviously you had the Cameroon Serbia game mental. You had the Korea Ghana game mental. So yeah, I think it depends what what the fan bases are. But overall, I, I found the atmospheres in the grounds really good. And just just finally, what's been your favourite moment so far? I think it was. I think it was. You, uh, that's probably the Iran game just that whole day really it was like oh we've we come here for, we, uh, come here for a World Cup we've won the opening game 6-2 when does that happen you know I was, I was expecting an a edgy sort of 2-1 victory but to put six past Iran on the opening game was amazing it was a great day it was obviously it was our first full day here on the Monday you know we had a few we had a few drinks before went there and then we had a bar booked in the evening where there was like live singers singing different songs so they were like they were, Filipi- they were like Filipino singers but they were like playing all different songs we you know we had Filipino singers singing Southgate you're the one on a massive stage <laughs> at the front, which was which was absolutely it was absolutely great, and there was all different countries in there having having a laugh. Uh, so I, I would say that whole whole experience of that because it was especially as it was our first full day in Qatar as well. I'd say I'd say that, but yeah, just the, the, the euphoria of that win and then celebrating in the evening was great. Amazing, mate. And um, Fulham fans listening are of course going to know who Dom is. Is Fulhamish back for when the Premier League resumes? Of course, we're doing a few bits, few bits and bobs during the World Cup. You know, looking at Mitrovic is doing, Robinson, Ream, you know, Dan James, Palina, how all the Fulham players are doing in in the World Cup because there's a few of us out here. But yeah, mm. yeah, Fulhamish will be back in the normal swing of things once Palace away comes ahead on Boxing Day. Nice one, thank you very much, Don. Mate, it's, uh, it's great chatting to you. Enjoy the rest of the tournament. Cheers, mate. Okay, so it has been an absolutely bonkers tournament so far, as all World Cups are. And the controversy aside, there has been a lot of ridiculous stuff going on. Um, Let's hear this particular interview (laughs) with some Welsh fans. Sorry, you're live on Sky News. Your reaction to the win? Uh, We lost. Sorry, reaction to the loss and apologies. Um, Reaction to the loss? Uh, Shit. Apologies for the language. Uh, 
Oh, oh god. my god, that's so classic. Can you imagine how embarrassing that would be for the uh, like the presenter when you like get your words wrong? You're waiting for the fans, and you think those guys they're the ones I'm going to ask. This is going to be TV gold, and then they say that to you, be like, yeah, sorry about that. Can I just like being a, a roving reporter doing Vox Pops? is such a thankless Awful. job. I hate it so and much. You could, you could be the best presenter in the world, which mm. clearly we're not, Joe. No <laughs> what do you mean? But, what do you mean? <laughs> uh, but you could be the best presenter in the world, but you get that one person that's going to say something about politics or is going to swear at you or just belittle you because they don't care and walk off. It's the most embarrassing thing that can ever possibly happen. Did I tell you um, about when I, I used to do the music festivals and stuff and like as a roving reporter. And I, firstly, I was, it was a bad job for me because I don't know <laughs> anything about modern culture. So I was the worst. Per- yeah, but if you're it, great at history, aren't you, Joe? If it'd been like, a, yeah, an English Civil War reenactment and I'd have got to go and interview <laughs> a pikeman. Um, I've had a great time. A box pop, a <laughs> yeah, me and loads of roundheads drinking mead. Um, but yeah, so we basically were at Love Box Festival and everyone was just off their face. So it's really hard. You know, and the producer, like, we need five or six interviews, come back five, six interviews. You just need something to fill up the, the rest of the video. It's like, fine, whatever. It's quite hard because everybody's wasted. Yeah. So you can't really use very much. And then I saw a group of like 16 year olds. I was like, oh, here we go. Fresh faced youngsters. Like maybe they're just here to have a good time. They all seem quite nice. I went over. I was like, guys, can we just quickly do an interview with you? They're like, yeah, 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 I'd love to, man. I'd love to. Like, so I was like, what's going to happen is I'll do a little piece to camera, like talk to the camera, blah, blah, blah. We're here with some people at Lovebox. Camera will turn around onto you guys. Then we'll start chatting. Is that okay? So yeah, yeah, that's cool. Cool. So I was like, okay. So we're here with Tony. He's not called Tony. He was 16. <laughs> We're with, we're with Clive and his friends. They're enjoying Love Box. 56. Um, like, guys, uh, tell us who you're most looking forward to seeing today. Camera pans around to them, at which point Clive reaches into his pocket, gets out a small bag of white powder oh, and no. his key and goes... And I was like, ah, oh, so cut there because we we cannot use... I don't know. For all I know, it might have been Eric Dyer style matcha tea or whatever, but I can't take that risk. My career is already on the rocks enough. I can't put that on air <laughs> oh my god that's so cringe isn't it I've told Awful. you I've told you about that time already where I was doing the 2012 Olympics and a, a little kid I had to quickly do a, an interview so I was like right you sit on your granddad's knee and then this little boy's like oh sits on this on a guy called Norman's knee and I was chatting to them both and the old guy looked a bit startled and the little kid looked really upset and I thought maybe they're just nervous because I'm asking them in front of 20,000 people like if they're enjoying the atmosphere and then I was like how are you feeling the little boy's like this isn't my granddad. And I was like, <laughs> do you know this man? And he didn't. But I literally just planted him on this old man's knee. So bad. So embarrassing. So he's like, well done, Hannah. I'm now going to end up on a register because I didn't yeah. do anything. And then, <laughs> and then literally we just panned to a woman. I was like, that woman there and the camera's watching her and, and she was breastfeeding. Um, <laughs> so that was that was just a bad day. It's it weird that we don't get as much live work as we used to, isn't it? <laughs> really weird, really odd. Yeah. Um, we talked about uh, Eric Dyer's uh, tea and his bags of herbs. Um, yeah. Did you enjoy the the Japanese players even after losing to Germany on Wednesday? Uh, <laughs> left their dressing room again spotless, as yeah. is their that's their thing. Yeah. Um, but they also made some beautiful origami swans. That's so sad. <laughs> But like, we really think that's sweet, don't we? Can you imagine how disgusting some of the dressing rooms are, though? Because that people, you know, players are like, oh, I'm never going to come 
back into this one specifically or someone will clean it up. I can only imagine. It reminds me of when I used to be a lifeguard when I was 16 <laughs> and they'd be like, family changing room two, somebody's done a poo. And it's like that, that you have to go and clean it up. I'd, I'd hate the thought of cleaning changing rooms after footballers have been in and just put whatever on the floor. Also, uh, the uh, in the Canada-Croatia um, game, uh, centre-back Atiba Hutchinson um, got a, a face injury. So he got a kind of a whack to the nose. And um, did you see how they solved this? This is fun. <laughs> put a tampon up his they nose. put a tampon up his nose. Is that, that like is... a, is that a medical thing to do that? Get a super plus tampon and be like, we got a bleeder and then <laughs> up the nose. Is that, is that but Obviously thing? he's a big hard Canadian, so he didn't care. But like, yeah. but also, because like, I thought, oh, maybe it's like a medical thing to like stop bleeding. That must be like a thing. Yeah. But then, like, they, it had a string coming yeah, off. Do, it. do they do they need the string? Is that necessary? Because I don't think the whole tube's going to get stuck up, up the brain, is it? Because I was watching it, and my girlfriend was like, he keeps having to blow the string out of his mouth <laughs> while he's running yeah. along. <laughs> You're already 4-1 down. It's like, I don't, I really don't need this. What's <laughs> that? Oh, God. If you've got any World Cup's funniest moments, do get in the touch oh, on Food Bar Radio on Instagram or on Twitter. Uh, right now, it's time for... Su- <laughs> right, I'll try it again. It's time, for t- it's, a- <laughs> it, it's time for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. So this is the segment oh. where we explore some of the most important aspects of football that rarely get discussed. Um, we talk to somebody who's involved in that area and they can shed a bit of light on it for us. Now, a massive, massive issue around football for probably the last 10, 15 years, something that's really grown... Uh, with various campaigners, and uh, not least of all, today's guest. But people like Anna Shearer have talked about it. People like Chris Sutton have talked about it. Um, there's been cases, obviously, um, in the media where we've seen uh, Jack Charlton, Bobby Charlton, um, and Nobby Styles, of course, people being diagnosed with dementia. And there's a strong link to heading the ball and how much they headed the ball during their careers. John Styles is with us now. Um, he's son of Nobby Styles, former player himself, um, and has been campaigning around the issue of head injuries. Um, John, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, you're all right. Yeah, good, thank you. How's it going? All right, thank you. So, John, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Your father, of course, was a legend of the game. You were a player yourself. Um, How did you become aware of the link between dementia, between your father's illness and heading the ball? Well, Dawn Astle rang me up. Um, She'd heard that my dad had got dementia. And um, she said, it's probably CTE. And I didn't even know what it was. So I went and researched it, checked it out. And repetitive head impact, it seemed to make sense. Um, so my dad started losing his memory when he was about 60, which is very young. Mm. So I checked it out. And then dad passed away. And mum made the decision to donate his brain. And it was riddled with CTE. He'd been diagnosed with, um, he'd been diagnosed with um, vascular dementia and Alzheimer's. And he had neither. His brain was actually riddled with CTE. So, so that's, that's why I'm campaigning, because um, oh it, it, killed, it killed my dad. Well, what exactly is, is CTE? It's um, whenever, you, whenever you head a ball or you have a head impact, mm. a protein breaks off your brain called tau. And this tau, if you don't head another ball, will settle back down, but players don't. They keep heading the ball, keep heading the ball. So it's microscopic. So over the years, this tau protein breaks off and then it gathers into clumps. And then the clumps settle into the brain and basically kill it. And 
it's not complicated. It's in any head, any sport with head impacts, CTE will be there. And in football, I'm convinced it's everywhere. Yeah. It's just it's just not rocket science. And what we've heard today, professional footballers in Scotland will be banned from heading in training the day before and after matches. I mean, this is a, a great step forward and very important, surely. I welcome it. Um, and I think it's, you know, they're obviously recognising there's a problem. But yeah. in a match, they've worked out um, that the, usual, the most you could usually head a ball is 10 times. But in training, you'll head the ball 30 or 40 times. Yeah. So yeah. I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather that it was um, reduced training days. But they, talk, they are talking about that in the same report. So I welcome it, but it's nowhere near enough, and it's not, it's not urgent enough. This is, this is really in the fullness of time. I believe this will be seen as a national scandal, like Hillsborough, Grenfell, Savile, all the rest. Mm. That nothing's been done about this. Is this? It was this an issue that was more prevalent in the past because obviously we talk about the the heavier older style footballs or is it still just as much of an issue today well um magdalena letsford at um, sterling university have done a study where they put sensors on players heads and they headed the ball with the new balls and the new balls at the start of a match the balls weigh the same as they always have done between 14 and 16 ounces but the other ones got wet so they got heavier mm. the new balls don't get wet but they travel faster and magdalena at Stirling University established through these sensors that when a player heads the ball with the new balls, it's 80% the power of a boxing punch. Wow. Seriously? That, yeah. And wow. so, so to me, to me, the danger is very much there. And, and the other thing is that kids now in academies, they've been going to academies earlier, you'd become an apprentice at 16 or whatever. Nowadays, they start when they're eight upwards or whatever. Um, so they've been heading the ball a lot longer than than perhaps say my era, but it needs addressing. This is it's killing footballs, killing, and it will kill more. And especially you've got evidence to back that up. Yeah. How how do you find watching a football match now? You know, there's hype around all the different tournaments, but from from what you've been through with your dad and and what you've been told and the research that's that's proven and, and showing this to be a problem, how do you personally feel watching a football match? Well, I don't go to many live matches. I've become a cynical old pro, I think. But I'll give you an example. I was walking with my grandson in the park a few weeks ago and there was a match on, um, you know, with just local fellas or whatever. And the ball got launched up and this kid headed the ball and I could hear the impact. Mm. Yeah. And it made me feel sick. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't want head in band um, because, you know, that's up to people what they want to do. But... Everybody should be informed about this. This is a killer disease, this CTE, and everybody should have been informed. Now, they banned it for 12-year-olds. Yeah. Whether it's being policed or not, I don't know. But what should happen is when they get to 12, 13, the parents should sign a waiver saying, or a consent form saying, we've been educated about CTE, we know the risks, my child is happy to head the ball. And when they get to 18, when they're old enough to make their own decisions, yeah. they should sign another consent form saying, we've been, I've been informed and I, I will do whatever I want to do now. That's what I want. Um, and that's, I think that's sensible just to be given information. But I'm just, I'm rabbiting on it, but I got that's kicked out. No, I, 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 got, <laughs> I got kicked out of, don't, I, I had some leaflets made up about the risks. They were, it was quite frank, you know. Um, so 
So I went to Don. I've written to all 92 league clubs, all the women's Super League clubs, asking if myself and Professor Willie Stewart can come and talk to the players. We've not got in, I've not got in anywhere. Um, and I was given these leaflets out of my old club, Doncaster Rovers, and I got chucked off um, the premises. They said it was because of COVID and all that. Anyway, that, as far as I'm aware, there's never been one piece of literature sent to a player stating the risks. Not one. Yeah. Now, that is not right. And the, well, the PFA union should be doing it, but they're not fit for purpose. So people should be informed. And once they're informed, they can make their own decisions. You mentioned the PFA, of course, and there's the responsibility falls on the FA, UEFA, FIFA as well. We've even seen it at this World Cup, not, not with heading, but with um, uh, the Iranian goalkeeper against England. So got a wallop on the head, yeah. lying on the floor. He obviously said he was safe to continue. Obviously, he's not really in a fit state to make that decision at that point because he's just taken a massive hit to the head. Kind of went down five minutes later and they had to take him off because obviously he had a head injury. But it seems to me, despite all the chat, the football authorities would rather let people play on so as not to ruin this lucrative spectacle than get him straight off, get him properly assessed, maybe get him scanned if that's what's appropriate. Um, do you think that that football authorities have have more to do to help with this situation? Well, they haven't done anything. Yeah. What you've just said sums it up. When I when you saw that lad get the whack. Yeah. You knew he'd gone. Mm. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, they don't care. Yeah. As long as they've got the product, as long as they, it's, it looks fantastic as a spectacle, which football does, of course, they don't care. I mean, I, I know so many families of ex-players in this country who are struggling like hell because they get no help, virtually no help from anybody. They've been abandoned. The PFA has abandoned them. They get no help. And I'm campaigning for a fund to get long-term healthcare costs covered for players who are suffering from what's happened in their career from heading the ball. But uh, they, don't, they don't care. Whatever they say, that, that, that lad, there's a thing called second impact syndrome. Mm. So if you're badly concussed, if you get another whack after that one, it can kill you. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you've, you've, actually, you've summed it up. There's, 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 there's nothing going on to safeguard them, I don't think. Um, but what you're doing here is a, a massive step forward and, and sort of campaigning for the change. And, and anybody listening to this today, how can people find out more about the work that you're doing? Well, you can Google me. I'm not, I'm not very high tech, I'm afraid. So I haven't got websites and all that. But I'd be happy to talk to anybody who wants to talk to me about it because yeah. Yeah. I've even started going into schools because right. I've been, in, I've been into to a couple of schools and trying to educate the kids and hardly anybody knows about this CTE. No. And it is, it, what it is, it's a terminal brain disease and it, it, everybody needs to be made aware of what's going on. Yeah, they absolutely yeah, do. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Um, Thanks yeah, so much. Yeah, fascinating, interesting, important stuff. So, yeah, honestly, real, real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, thank, uh, thank you. John Styles there, um, son of Nobby Styles, former footballer himself, um, campaigner around head injuries. And it's, I mean, that, I don't know about you, Hannah, that's kind of one of those things that I think sometimes when you, you kind of do this job, you get to have these conversations. And that was pretty, I mean, obviously quite distressing, but pretty pretty amazing stuff and the work he's doing is incredible yeah like I've genuinely never heard of it and when he said about the proteins and how every time you have impact to your head you kind of think well that happens in rugby you think how, how's that happening so so much in football I'd never heard of it before so 
Um, what an incredible um, story from him there. Yeah, we watch these footballers and we enjoy them kind of all through the divisions or whatever, but there's a responsibility, I think, of the professional organisations to look after them. Um, right, that's yeah. that's it for today. Thank you to to all our guests. Um, on the next show, we're going to be speaking to rapper Avellino. And uh, Hannah, you're a hip-hop fan, aren't you? So you'll probably get you to look Oh, I mean, that. you can tell. I mean, I am clearly oh. a gangster hip-hop rapper and all that. Or whether it's Vanilla Ice or the Sugar Hill Gang, Hannah well, is across all girls. of them. <laughs> not a hypocrite. No, um, <laughs> um, I will also be talking to football whistleblower um, Benita Merciades, I think I've said that correctly, uh, who was involved in Australia's bid for the World Cup and has been involved in shedding light on some of the stuff that FIFA have been up to. Um, Hannah, thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. Really <laughs> and, enjoyed that. <laughs> welcome. Um, and we will see you next time. Bye. <laughs>